So glad you're all here for the second week, as, Le, as Lauren mentioned, in the book of Galatians. You know, there's a little bit of a danger when we're reading God's Word, especially these epistles of the New Testament. These are letters written by someone to someone. And it can be a little challenging sometimes when you're reading somebody else's mail. It sounds irreverent, but that's really kind of what we're doing, isn't it? Now, don't, don't take this wrong. We do believe the Bible, these letters are written for us, but they aren't written to us. That's a distinction we need to make. We know that's true, for instance, because this letter is written to the Galatians. Do we have any Galatians here with us this morning? I'm not. I, I doubt if you are. So we know it was written to somebody else, and it can be sometimes confusing when we're reading somebody else's mail. Let me give you an example of that. The story is told of a, of a couple that decided to celebrate their anniversary by vacationing from wintry Chicago down to Florida, where they had spent their honeymoon many years earlier. The husband was free to travel, but his wife had to work an extra day. So he traveled alone and got checked in and settled and decided to send an email to his wife to let her know everything was all set. Sadly, he mistyped her address. So the email, instead of going to his wife, went to the computer of a sweet little old lady, a pastor's widow, sadly enough, who had buried her pastor husband several weeks before. And she went into her uh, office and read her computer and saw the email pop up, and she read it and screamed and fainted. Her son came running in to revive her and, and said, Mom, Mom, what's wrong? And with a trembling hand, she pointed to the screen of her computer, and he sat down and read this email. My dearest wife, I want you to know that my trip went well, and I'm all settled in. Everything is ready for your arrival here tomorrow. I hope your journey is as pleasant as mine was, and I can't wait to see you. P.S. It sure is hot down here. So you can imagine, as she misunderstood the writer and the recipient of the letter, it created great confusion. Some of the same confusion can happen if we're not careful as we read the epistles of the New Testament. So that means that the Bible rewards diligent study. It rewards us when we say, okay, this is a letter written by someone to someone. That's what's inspired. Let me get to know this. We're going to spend some time today doing that because the Bible is a rewarder of careful study. And this also means, by the way, that we should probably avoid the question we often ask in group Bible studies. I don't know how many times over the years I've heard this phrase, what does this verse mean to you? I realize that can launch some interesting discussions, but that's really not the first question we should ask. We should ask, what did this verse mean to the people who received it? And in light of that, what is here for me? Because the Bible is written for us, but it was written to someone else. We have to understand their situation first before our own. And we're going to spend some time doing that today. Would you pray with me as we start? Lord, thank you that this is written for us. And we do ask that you would open our eyes to what's in it so that we can learn and know you better. We pray with gratitude in Christ's name. Amen. You know, we need to understand, in the case of the Galatians, who wrote it, who did he write it to, and why did he write it. And to help us get there, I think I feel a map coming on, all right? I am becoming known here uh, at Heights as the map guy, and that's okay. I've been called worse in my life, all right? So I want us to understand. We're going to go all the way back to the book of Acts to understand this letter better before we start reading it, so we don't faint like the lady did who got the email. All right. 
If you remember in the book of Acts, the church of Jesus Christ was born in the city of Jerusalem, in the country where Jesus spent his entire life and ministry, where he had done miracles and was crucified and, and, and gave his life and then rose again. And on the day of Pentecost, the church was born among people who all had a pretty similar background. They spoke the same language for the most part, though they spoke other languages as well because they were from all over the world, but they were all Jewish. They had the same worldview. They shared the same religion. They were all citizens of Israel. And early on, that made church life relatively simple. But Jesus had made it clear from the start that his plan was bigger than that. He said, go to make disciples of all the nations. See, Jesus had a plan that included everything on this map and much, much more. So it was clear from the start that this little cloistered beginning was going to change, and it did quickly. By Acts chapter 11, persecution had driven the epicenter of the church north to the town of Antioch. Now, Antioch became a city of firsts for this movement of Jesus' followers. It was the first place of all the places up till then where Jewish believers in Jesus, who saw him as their Messiah, were worshiping side by side with Greek Gentile believers in Jesus who had no background in the Old Testament, didn't understand the concept of Messiah, but saw Jesus as their Savior. And for the first time, although people had come to Christ from all around earlier, now they're in the same place, worshiping in the same congregation. It's just exactly what Jesus had wanted to happen, right? And everybody was excited about it, but there was a little concern back in Jerusalem. This was radical, what was going on in Antioch. It was also, by the way, the first place the word Christians was used to describe Christ's followers. Because up till then, it was just kind of a branch of Judaism. But now, obviously, non-Jews are involved. We need a new word. So they came up with the word Christian, which we still bear now 2,000 years later. So people in Jerusalem got a little concerned. This was new and different and kind of radical. It just kind of wasn't done. So they looked for someone they could trust to send him up there to keep an eye on things. And they asked a man named Barnabas, who had earned the respect of the church in Jerusalem, to go north to keep an eye on it and let them know if this was okay. It was not only okay in his mind, he loved it. He was thrilled. And he knew he, he needed help if he was going to help lead this church. So he called to a man named Saul, who lived in Tarsus, right around here, who was pretty well known in the church. But he was kind of, uh, and the people had mixed views of this man. He was a man who back in Jerusalem had been a Pharisee, uh, opposed to this new movement among the, the, the Jews of Israel. In fact, wanted to stomp it out. And as he went north to Damascus to bring them back in chains, Jesus appeared to him on the road, saved him, gave him a message for the entire world, and that man Saul, who would become the Apostle Paul, eventually settled back in his hometown, Tarsus. Barnabas said, hey, Saul, come help me out. We're going to lead this church in Antioch. And they became a team, a leadership team, a team that eventually would be set apart by the Holy Spirit to be sent by this church with the message of Jesus into this region of the world called Galatia. So they went off on the first missionary journey in Acts chapter 12, and every place they went, they went first to a synagogue, because there were Jews scattered from all over, uh, living all over the world. They went there and said, Jesus is the Messiah we've been waiting for. And some heard and responded, and some didn't. And when they were no longer welcome in the synagogues, they turned to the rest of the people of that town, the non-Jews, the Gentiles, and said, Jesus is the Savior of the world. And some responded, and some didn't. And the people who'd responded, Jew and Gentile, gathered in these little groups called churches that looked a whole lot like the church back in Antioch. 
And so every place they went, they planted churches that looked like that one. And when that journey was over, they came back to Antioch and reported on what God had done. And everybody threw a great big party and everybody celebrated. Almost everybody. Because some people thought this is too easy. This is not the right message we should take. And some folks came from Jerusalem to Antioch after this great breakthrough and said, you can't be saved if you're not circumcised, according to the traditions of Moses. Meaning, you can't come to Jesus unless you become Jewish first. You have to accept all the rituals and ceremonies and festivals and rules and regulations of the Old Testament if you want to follow Jesus. Now, if this were a scary movie... This is where the bad guy music would start, okay? Because the... And there it is. These guys would become a thorn in the side of the people who were sharing the true gospel because they were saying, simple faith is not enough. Trusting Jesus is not good enough. You've got to also keep all these rules. And the church in Antioch said, well, we've got to settle this. So a bunch of people went back to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15, and they held what we call the Council in Jerusalem. If you were with us last summer in the series in Acts, this is kind of review to you. But in this council, they had to settle a very important question. Jesus sent us to the world with a message. What's the message? What are we taking to people? Are we saying become Jewish so you can follow Jesus? Or are we saying, put your trust in Jesus? That was the debate that took place in Jerusalem. And friends, you and I are here today because of the answer that they came up with. In the end of that council, the message, the simple gospel of salvation by faith in Jesus that Paul had preached in Galatia, that message was endorsed by the council in Jerusalem. A letter was written, and they returned to Antioch and had another party now saying, this is the gospel that Jesus sent us out with. Not a bunch of rules and regulations, not trying to impress God by how hard we work, but simply trusting Jesus. That was the message. Now, somewhere along the way, Paul wrote the letter that we're studying. And he wrote it because he got word that the same people who come to Antioch and stirred up the trouble by saying, no, 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 it's not enough just to trust. You also have to be circumcised. They had gone into these churches where they had planted the gospel. And Paul got word somewhere along the line that the people he had led to trust Jesus were, were listening to these guys. And were starting to wonder, first wondering about Paul himself. Who is this guy? Can we trust him? Is he, is he, is he credible? And then more importantly, they were wondering about the message that he had given them. Is it true that we can just simply trust Jesus? Maybe we should hear these other preachers who've come with this different gospel, the one Paul referred to in the passage Ron preached on last week. If someone comes to you with another gospel, he said, this is that other gospel. And Paul is realizing the people I love, the people I've led to trust Jesus, they had been set free, but they were going back into the cage. They were going back into legalism. They were going back into trying their best to impress God with how hard they did stuff and basing their acceptance before God on themselves and not on Jesus. He had set them free, and they were going back into the cage. And that's why he wrote this letter. It's his most angry letter, by far. I don't know if you're reading it as we go. I hope you are. That would be a good way to spend your study time this summer. hope you're reading, it, reading along. If you do, you're going to be impressed by the tone of his letter. He calls them names. He calls those preachers names. He's really ticked. 
After you read Galatians, you're not tempted to invite Paul to a party. All right. He doesn't come across as a fun guy to have around. Why? Because he's really, really turned up about what's happening among these people, which tells us maybe just maybe the gospel is worth getting worked up about. See, the stakes are high. We're not talking about an irrelevant side topic of our faith. We're talking about how do you get right with God? And when you tinker with that, you're tinkering with the core of faith and people's eternity is at stake. So when he writes this letter, he writes it angry. He writes it tense. He writes it as a frustrated man. But maybe the gospel is worth being worked up about. I think that's the message of this book. And actually, the message of today's sermon is this. The big idea for today is this. I think it's the summary of what Paul is saying. Once the gospel has made you a free bird, stay out of the cage. Let's read this aloud together. Once the gospel has made you a free bird, stay out of the cage. That's what Paul is telling the the Galatians, and through them, that's what he's saying to us. In the passage we'll look at today that cover most of chapters 1 and 2, it's a big text we're going to look at, just a couple pieces of it. We're going to first of all look at Paul's defense of his own authority and then his defense of his gospel. If you don't have a Bible, you'll need one. Raise your hand if you would, and some folks in the back will be glad to come and give you one that is a gift from us. If you need to hang on to it, do feel free. Slip your hand in the air if you don't have one, and fine, thank you. Doc, someone over there is raising his hand. Someone way over here on the side, too. Keep it up in the air until someone finds you, if you would. Galatians, remember now, is this letter. It's written by a man whose heart is torn by how quickly people he loved were turning away from the simple trust in Jesus he had called them to. And instead were saying, I've got to try my best and God will reward me for my best efforts. Well, now he's got to defend himself. And that's what he does, starting in verse 11. Follow with me as I read. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preach is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man. Nor was I taught it, rather I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you've heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me, so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I didn't go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. We'll stop there, friends. This defense of Paul's authority carried on into the middle of chapter 2. And it's easy to, to imagine what these men might have said in his absence about him to prompt him needing to defend himself the way he does. It's easy to imagine. If I wanted to undermine his credibility, here's what I might say. Folks, you all realize, don't you, that Paul never really walked with Jesus the way the other disciples did. He wasn't like Peter, who spent three years with Jesus. This Paul guy, he's a Johnny-come-lately to this whole thing. And remember, he set out to undermine, to destroy the church. Don't you think maybe he's doing it from the inside now? Wouldn't this be the way to do it, to get inside and preach this too simple message? Just telling you what you want to hear to make it too easy? Don't trust him. Don't believe him. It's easy to imagine how this man might be attacked. And it's easy to imagine young believers saying, wow, that's a good point. Because in some level, Paul was kind of an odd choice to move the church into the next level, wasn't he? 
Look at his background. Look at he was a bad guy. He was a persecutor. He was all this. And yet when you realize what Jesus had in mind for this next level of the church's life, he wasn't such an odd choice. Remember, he was steeped in Old Testament traditions. He understood the roots of the Christian faith better than anybody. He had sold himself out and become a Pharisee because he valued that. And then he has this encounter with Jesus and finds out the real purpose of that law, which I'll talk about in a minute. And he's a man who, because although he understood Jerusalem, he was born and raised in Tarsus, far from Israel. He was, Tarsus was a Roman colony, so he was a Roman citizen. That's going to come in handy during his ministry. He's a man who spoke Greek. He's a man who was educated, a man who had traveled. And to lead a church that was destined to permeate the entire Roman Empire, now he's a pretty good choice for all of that. But he has to defend himself, not just here, but in other letters of the New Testament as well. So what does he do? He says, yes, I was zealous for the Old Testament law. I was raised in that system. I was sold out for it. And then Jesus met me. Jesus saved me. Jesus gave me a, a message that I've sold out my life to now. That he, he says, take this to the whole world. And Paul is saying, you can trust me. This message is the one that God has for you. So that is his defense of his Authority, but we're going to spend a little more time on his defense of his gospel. A couple, a chapter later, Paul gets to the bottom line issue, the most important reason he wrote this letter. It's found in chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. Now that we know his story and we know their story, we're ready to understand better why he says what he says in these two verses. Follow with me, Genesis, or Galatians 2.15. We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles... We know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Did you notice, friends, he says the same thing three times? Does he need to? Once is enough. Twice is great. Three, wow, he's driving home the point. Now, what is he saying? He's saying we all need to be justified somehow. Ron referred to that word last week. Uh, it means to be declared innocent. We all need to stand before a holy God and have him declare us innocent. Wow. How do we get there? That's the question of life, isn't it? If we know God exists and we know he's perfect and holy, we know he's got a very high expectation of, of his people and we know ourselves, and we know what we're like when people are looking. We know worse what we're like when no one's looking except God. And we know we're going to stand before him one day, and we've got to find a way because he doesn't let guilty people hang around him. If we want to be with him, we've got to be declared innocent by him. How do we get there? And Paul is saying, I spent my life trying to get there by myself. I built my life around keeping the rules well enough so that I could be declared innocent because I worked at it, because I tried my best. And he says, I and many others, Galatians, have learned that's never going to work. That's not going to happen. So give up. You cannot become innocent because you do what the law says. That's not what it's for. I'll talk to you in a minute about what it is for. He's saying we put our trust in Christ not in our own obedience. We trust him and what he's done for us, not in our ability to keep the rules. So if we've realized, Galatians, that that's not the way to be innocent before God, 
then why are you turning back to it? Why are you turning back into the cage of legalism and impressing God and, and being trying to do your best and hoping it's good enough for Him? He's saying, you Jewish believers in Galatia, why are you going backwards? You Gentile believers, why would this even be attractive to you? We've learned that that's not the way to go to be saved by God. We'll talk about obedience later. It has its place. But to be right with Him, if that's up to you, you're doomed. Because you can't get there by yourself. That's his message. He says it's by trusting Jesus that we get there. It's by, we'll talk about that in just a minute too. But this leaves a question hanging. He's saying the law, the rules of the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments and the other 600 that came with them. He's saying that's not how you become innocent in God's eyes. But if that's true, then why did God give it in the first place? What was the purpose of all these rules? If it wasn't to show people a way to be right with him. That's a good question, but there's a good answer. I think there's a couple of reasons God gave these laws. One is he wanted to show us, if you think it's up to you to live a perfect enough life for God, here's what that looks like. And when we look at the law, it shows us what it takes to be perfect. And instead of helping us get there, it just shows us how far we are from it. Every time we look at the rules, it's, oh, I blew that one. Oh, I blew that one. Oh, I blew another one. It doesn't give power to keep the rules. It just shows us how far we fall short. And that's the written law. Then Jesus comes along and makes it even harder, right? Jesus raises the bar even further. Jesus says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit murder. But I tell you, even if you hate somebody, you'll be judged. Oh, Lord, come on, really? Seriously? You're going to make it harder? <laughs> okay. I tell you, don't commit adultery, Jesus says. But I tell you, even if you look at a woman and lust after her, you'll be judged. Oh, come on, Lord, really? Even if I don't do anything about it? Am I responsible for my thoughts? Not just my words and my actions? And Jesus says, yeah. So these rules don't show us how to be innocent. It shows us that we're guilty. But there was another side of the law that showed something else that we needed to understand. See, built into that, those laws were, was a sacrificial system. A whole bunch of possibilities where there could be an animal that would be sacrificed. There would be, in the temple, there would be an animal that would shed its blood. John talked about it two weeks ago with the doorposts and the blood on the doorposts. That was one of the early sacrifices. So built into this system of, of law is the revelation that God is eager to forgive. And he creates a way that an innocent substitute would take the place of the guilty person. But with every sacrifice that, Israel, that the Israelites performed, they were saying, I deserve that. That should be my blood. That should be my death. But my God is so good that he's willing to take the blood of an innocent substitute for me. And every one of those sacrifices pointed the way to Jesus, the Lamb of God, who would take away the sins of the whole world. So by reading the law, it wasn't, okay, do all this and you'll be good enough, because God knew we couldn't do all that. It was, you are guilty, you know how guilty you are, but by the way, I'm eager to forgive. And prepared the way for Jesus to be that forgiveness. Galatians 3, uh, next chapter, will, will, he'll say that the law was a tutor... To lead us to Christ. The law was a guardian 
to keep us safe until faith would come along and we understood the object of that faith. And now, oh, he's the sacrifice. Now I get it. I'm not good enough for God, but Jesus is. And he shares his good enough with me. When I bow the knee to him, I'm right with God because all of what he's done gets credited to my account and all of what I've done gets debited to his. What a fantastic bargain. That's what the purpose was of the law. And that's why Paul is making a heartfelt appeal here. You see, these people had gotten word that there was a a different way to get right with God. They had embraced this, but it was getting back into the cage. And Paul is saying to them, I set you free, Galatians. The message I brought you opened the cage door and secured it with a twist tie. And you don't have to go back in it anymore. Don't fly back into the cage and close the door behind you. Don't go back to wondering if you're good enough. Because if it's up to you to be good enough, well, where's enough? Where's the line? And what side of it am I on? And when will I know? Well, you won't know till you get before God and he tells you, pass, fail. What an awful life to wonder constantly about whether God accepts you. To wonder constantly if he sees you trying your best and is willing to give you credit for all the yucky stuff you've done. How great it is to be free of the constant striving to impress God and have your salvation depend on it. How great to be free of the condemnation for your failures. And Paul's saying, don't go backwards. Don't fly back into the cage. Don't give up the incredible freedom of faith in Christ in exchange for the slavery of trying to save yourself through your own works. Friends, in a nutshell, that is the story that Paul is writing to these Galatians. That's the message he's sending to them, and he's taking four chapters to drive it home. We only looked at a couple of those passages. But now that we know who wrote the letter, why he wrote it, and who he wrote it to, we have to ask this question. Are we Galatians? Are we Galatians today? Well, we've looked at two aspects of being Galatians, right? One was they were questioning Paul's authority. I doubt, frankly, if many of us are Galatians in that area. Anybody here wake up this morning saying, I wonder about the credibility of the Apostle Paul. Uh, Okay, I just I don't think that's a burning issue in our day. So we're not going to spend a lot of time on that side of this message today. However, I dare say in terms of the other issue, questioning Paul's gospel. I would imagine there are Galatians in the room. I would imagine there are people who have sadly embraced the idea that it's up to me somehow. That it's up to my works and my efforts. Now there are people here who haven't yet gotten the fact that Jesus did it all. And that you can rest in that. And to help you identify whether you might be Galatianish or not, let me ask you this question. Don't answer out loud. But answer to yourself. When you die, will you go to heaven? If your answer is, I hope so. I hope so. I hope God... What are you saying by saying I hope so? You're saying this. I hope God sees me trying my best. I hope God sees me really, really working at being the person he wants me to be. I hope he gives me credit for effort. I, I hope he... Blinks or winks at the other stuff that I know I'm guilty of, but I hope he, he says, you know, you've really been trying. 
I hope somehow I tip God's scale on the right side. I'm not sure where that side is, and I can't be sure. Why, if that's what you're saying, friends, you're more Galatian than you ought to be. And it's a little scary how Galatian you might be. Because what you're saying is this. On the race toward forgiveness, on the race toward salvation, on the race toward being right with God, you're saying, if you think that way, that Jesus picked you up at the starting line, carried you 80% of the way to the finish line, dropped you there, said, there's the finish line, run as fast as you can because hell is right behind you. You're saying that Jesus took you most of the way, and now the rest is up to you. Maybe you're saying Jesus took you 99% of the way to the finish line. And now he's saying, just jump across it. Do your best. You've got to, you've got, you're involved in this somehow. Somehow it's up to you. Friends, the message Paul preached to the Galatians that opened the cage door and set them free was this. Jesus picked you up at the finish line carried you the entire race, crossed the finish line victoriously, and dropped you in salvation. That's what he did. Yes. That's why when he died on the cross, he didn't say, it's almost finished. What did he say? It is finished. I've done what's needed. So people who trust me are right with God. They're innocent in God's eyes. Not because they're good enough, Jesus says, but because I'm good enough. And I share my good enough with them. Now, are we saying obedience doesn't matter? Of course not. Keep coming for the next six weeks. (laughs) You'll see that we're called to these lives of obedience, but not in the hopes that God will love us, but because he already does. Not hoping that God will save me if I work my best. It's he's already saved me, so he deserves my best. Do you hear the freedom in that? Do you hear? It's not a cage. It's not a locked door. It's. Oh, I can rest in what Jesus did, and now I want to love him and serve him and let him know how grateful I am that he carried me across the finish line of forgiveness and innocence and being right with God. Friends, that's the message of the gospel. It's, if you don't believe that, then you're saying this. The second person of the Trinity, God himself, took on human form lived among us for over 30 years, showed us what a perfect life looked like, loved and healed and, and, and reached out in compassion. And at the end of that life, he gave his perfect body to be beaten and crucified, shed his blood, though he was innocent, for the salvation of people who would trust him, was buried and rose again to seal our salvation. But what really impresses God is, I go to church a lot. It sounds silly when you put it like that, but... If we're stuck in this Galatian view of our salvation, that's what we're saying. We're saying, I've added something to what Jesus did on the cross, and that something is necessary. And God says, no, that's not the case. Friends, we've got to be able to say yes to 1 John 5, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Friends, if you don't yet know that you have eternal life because you believe in the name of the Son of God, maybe you don't understand these things that are written. Maybe you've fallen into the trap of the Galatians. That somehow it's on your shoulders. That you've got to try your best. And what Jesus did wasn't enough. Cage doors open, friends. The gospel opened it. The good news of Jesus opened it. What I'd like to do with you right now is to give you an opportunity to fly out of it, (laughs) if you haven't yet. 
We did something like this last week, but it's worth doing again today. What I want to do is pray through the gospel with you right now. It's something I try to do on a fairly regular basis because I I know it's tempting to see the gospel as the front door of the house of Christianity. You go through it on the first day and then you explore all the rest and leave the gospel behind. No, the gospel is the house of Christianity. Every, Every room is permeated by it. And I try to remind myself of that on a regular basis. Uh, last weekend, as you, some of you know, I, I hike on a regular basis once a week. I, uh, I hike, go for a walk with God, and the goal is to pray and worship. But last week I was at Campbell Mesa, east of Flagstaff. Isn't that beautiful? Who wants to come with me next time? Sorry, you can't. It wouldn't be the same if, you, <laughs> if you're all there. Sorry. But I encourage, I encourage you to do it yourself if you'd like. Nine miles of that, frankly. It was beautiful. And on this occasion, because I was already starting to think through this message today, I decided to pray through the gospel. And I want to do that now with you. For some of you, again, this is review. This is, okay, I've heard this before, but I hope it's a stirring review. Some of you might have already realized, or you'll realize as I pray, that you're more Galatian than you're comfortable with. That you think it's more riding on you than on Jesus. That he did his part, now it's up to you to do yours, to be right with God. If that's the case, as I pray, you might find yourself praying along with me. And I invite you to do that. Because this might be the day when you finally rest. This might be the day when you say, yeah, my obedience matters, but not for my salvation. Jesus did that. Maybe this is the moment when you'll relax. And you'll be able to say... I'm declared innocent not because of what I do, but because of what Jesus did. I'm going to pray, and most of that's going to be with my eyes open, because I don't want to step off the stage. But I invite you to close them, keep them open, whatever you like. And I'm going to pray through the gospel, like I did that day. Lord, that was a beautiful day. Thanks for that beautiful place of your nature, doing what you created it for. Thanks that the trees and the meadow and the clouds all point to you, that you created this world to reveal truth about you. And it does it so well. It tells me how powerful you are and how creative you are and how beautiful you are, how generous you are, how giving you are. Thank you that you made us human beings and put us in the midst of it to take care of it and allow it to do what you created it for. Lord, that's a huge role you gave us. And we failed. It's about you. We made it about us. It points to you. We want to point to us. We are proud people. I'm a proud person. We are rebels. I'm a rebel. And I want things to point to me. I want it to be about me. And you've shown me how far I fall short of your expectation of me, and you have every right to expect things of me because you're God. I am so not God. When I look at your word, when I look at you, Jesus, and the perfect life you lived, I'm keenly aware of how far I fall short. I'm a proud man. I'm an angry man. I'm a lustful man. And I'm so many things that you know even that I don't. And if you were to give me what I deserve... If you were to judge me forever, because you're holy and I'm not, I would have no way to complain. It's what I deserve. But God, I'm so glad that's not your goal. 
I'm so glad that even though you knew I could not change myself or make myself innocent before you, that you found a way for that to happen that didn't involve me trying my best. And thank you that you came and lived among us and you showed us what a perfect life looks like and then you died and let your blood be shed not for your sins but for ours. Not for your sins but for mine. I'm glad that you've created a system where you could declare me innocent not because I'm good but because you're good. Lord, I I don't deserve it. It amazes me that you would view me with that kind of love. And that's why I do again what I did when I was 11, Lord, and I I thank you for that day and every day since. I bow the knee to you, and I turn away from that rebellious heart of mine. I put no trust in it. I put no trust in me. I put all my trust in you. I bow before you to recognize you as King of kings and Lord of lords, as the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world, including mine. I commit myself to trust you and follow you because you're the only one worth following. I renounce and I repent of those sins and I trust you completely for my forgiveness and celebrate the fact that you made me right with God, not because I'm good, but because you're good. Not because I tried my best, because my best is not good enough, but because you did what was needed. I thank you for saying it is finished when you died for me. And help me now to live a life that brings you honor. Help me now to live a life in which those moments of sin and and rebellion become more and more rare and and moments of Christ-likeness become more and more common. Because I want my life to reflect you. I, I want my life to show how glad I am for what you've done. So, Lord, I thank you that you have forgiven me, that you have saved me. I thank you that I know that I have eternal life because you promised it. And I cling to your promise and not to myself. God, work in me through your spirit so that my life can reflect that gratitude so that others can see who you are because you've changed me. And all those who know they have eternal life said, Amen.